The reading today is taken from Amos chapter 1, beginning at verse 11. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent, because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land, because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. I will send fire on Taman that will consume the fortresses of Bosra. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not relent, because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah that will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day. Her king will go into exile, he and his officials together, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not relent. Because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king, I will send fire on Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kerioth. Moab will go down in great tumult amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent. Because they have been rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees. Because they have been led astray by false gods. The gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor, as on the dust of the ground, and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God they drink wine taken as fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape, the strong will not muster their strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, the fleet-footed soldier will not get away, and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, um, as we begin this series on uh, the prophet Amos and the book of Amos, we pray that you challenge us um, in 2019 to learn from what was said to the Israelites so long ago, um, to see how it's relevant to our day and to challenge us to live um, as true disciples. Amen. In the opening of the classic 20th century novel, The Great Gatsby, the narrator write, writes, In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. Whenever you feel like criticising anyone, he told me, just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the advantages that you've had. It's a lot easier to be morally upright when you're not pinching and scraping to make a living which makes the immorality of the wealthy even more unforgivable. Every advantage in the world 
and they can't even be nice people. There's something we know um, from general life wisdom that F. Scott Fitzgerald is writing here, that wealth is something to be enjoyed, but it has a corrupting power. It can turn friendly, moral, upright people into immoral and nasty people, to use his words. And we know this to be true from the arts. Um, the great Gatsby explores this theme. Um, the great um, film Citizen Kane looks at that idea, the corrupting power of wealth. Recent world leaders, such as Silvio uh, Berlusconi, who fell from grace for corruption and having sex with an underage prostitute, or the Chinese billionaire Joseph Lau, who bought his seven-year-old daughter the famous uh, Blue Moon Diamond worth $77 million. Um, he was convicted in 2014 for corruption and bribery in Macau. But the corrupting power of prosperity is not just for those people over there, the rich billionaires, it's also for God's people. In about 930 BC, after the reign of King Solomon, God split the 12 tribes of Israel into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And we've got to remember that when I talk about Israel in the Amos series, I'm not just talking generally about the Israelites, I'm talking about the Israelites living in the northern kingdom of Israel. There was suffering and hardship for a few centuries. And then in the early in the 8th century BC, God put King Jeroboam II in the north and King Uzziah in the south. And this is like a kind of a recovery period for um, uh, God's people after a few centuries of struggle, war and, and stress and pain and, and poverty and famine and different things going on. This was a recovery period. It was, it was even a, a period of prosperity. Uh, the kingdoms were at peace with, with each other and extended their borders. And God's people enjoyed life so much that their moral and religious standards started to slip. They became increasingly corrupt and promoted injustice rather than justice. The gap between the rich and the poor increased. As production increased, so did consumerism, individualism, greed and overconfidence. At the same time, this was a very religious time, we, we know. Religious in, in, in not in a good way. They blended their worship with other pagan um, religions. They used their wealth for outward show in worship. Their, their prosperity had won away their hearts from God. So God sent his prophets. He sent Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, Amos. And it's the prophecies of Amos that we will be addressing over the next month. The Bible is clear or it presents a kind of a perspective on prosperity, which is worth just kind of looking at. Um, there's, there's kind of two kinds of understandings of prosperity in the Old Testament. Um, on the one hand, it's, it's a good thing. It's seen in the Old Testament as a good thing. It's a sign of a blessing, of the payoff of working hard, of, of a righteous life. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 9 famously says it's better to work with a second person because you'll get much more return for your hard work. The story of Joseph tells of, um, you know, uh, the righteous son of Jacob who went on to be blessed with wealth and privilege 
the second most powerful person in Egypt, while his corrupt brothers suffered in famine in Canaan. The story of the Israelites is of slaves being freed and eventually being blessed after 40 years in the desert with life in the land of milk and honey, in the promised land. So prosperity is seen as a good thing. As Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Now, in the Old Testament, it also paints another picture of prosperity. And that is bad prosperity or the bad effects of prosperity. Wicked people prosper. And often it is prosperity that brings on wickedness as well. And sometimes in the Old Testament, the word rich is synonymous with the word wicked. Listen to Psalm 10. In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. Your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears, no one will ever do me harm. And it is this kind of link between prosperity and wickedness that Amos is really drawing out. Minor prophets, especially Amos, he really focuses in on this. Amos, who travels from the southern kingdom up to the northern kingdom to bring this prophecy. So let's look at chapter 1 and 2 and see what he has to say. I started us off reading from verse 11, but I will refer to before that too. I just thought there's a lot of repetition of the kind of judgment that, that goes on in the previous verses. So if you've got your Bible, you can see the previous verses. So the prophecy in Amos 1, begins by casting judgment on Israel's enemies, the the surrounding Gentile nations. This is music to Israel's ears. God looks at these pagan nations, the violence and injustice that they have committed, and pronounces through Amos a punishment for them. In uh, chapters 1, verse 3 to 2, verse 3, God accuses the Syrians and the Philistines for fighting over Gilead. And then the Edomites, in verse 11 to 12, where our our reading began. Look at verse 11. Because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land, because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked, they attacked the nations that were were culturally related to them. You know, that would be as bad as if Australia attacked New Zealand. What are you doing in attacking the Anzacs? You know, come on. That's, That's what they were doing, the Edomites. His brother with a sword. These brothers might have been the Israelites, which is why in um, Psalm 137, um, they sing, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Edomites were bad news. Amos 1 verse 11 says, They slaughtered the women of the land. They were hostile. They committed crimes against humanity. They were wild beasts. God will not let the Edomite clan, T-man, nor the Edomite city of Bozra escape his judgment he will send fire to them 
And in doing so, he will declare his hatred of sin and his sovereignty over all the nations. Verse 13 to 15 tells us about the Ammonites ripping open the women of Gilead to prevent the birth of boys who could one day make claim to the land. God will destroy them with fire and war. Chapter 2 verse 1 looks at the Moabites. Um, Because of their um, desecration of the dead, they burn to ashes the bones of Edom's king. So it's interesting, previously God's casting judgment on the Edomites and now he's casting judgment on the Moabites for what they did to the Edomites. They showed no respect for their neighbouring people. They brought great shame on them. So while these neighbouring pagan nations were not bound by God's covenant law, nevertheless, God still expected them to live in a just and right way. Crimes against humanity equals crimes against God. It doesn't matter who you are. And God is revealing through Amos that he has a special love and concern for the poor and the marginalised, for those who are suffering. His eye is on those who are being persecuted and he sees them. As Australian Christians, we need to realise this, this truth, that God doesn't just look at you as an individual, his judgement doesn't just land on you as an individual, but it lands on whole nations. And we need to realise this when we consider the way our country treats those who are on the margins. We need to step outside of our political tribes and forget about left-right issues, what side you're on. And we, we need to see the marginalised people in Australia through God's eyes, how, how Australians treat refugees locked up in detention to suffer to the point of suicide. We cannot turn a blind eye to the widening uh, wealth gap, health gap, education gap between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. The God who is in the book of Amos, the God of the Bible, the God we worship, does not just call each individual to account but calls whole nations to account, whether they think that they're Christian or not. Amos is prophesying to Israel in the north and now the the kingdom of Israel in the north are about to hear God's judgment on the kingdom of the south, Judah in the south. It's as if God's eye is moving closer and closer to them, but they don't necessarily realise this just yet. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. Judah has been led astray by idols. The NIV says led astray by the idols, but in other translations, like the ESV, um, it says their lies have led them astray, as in, in other words, the lies of the idols have led them astray. And that word lie, interestingly, is used elsewhere in the Bible to refer to idols. Psalm verse four, chapter 4, verse 2 says, the godless are those who seek a divine word from the lie, as in capital L lie, it's like a personification of lie, the idol lie. I, idols promise life but deliver death. They have enticed whole generations of God's people with their deceitful words and have distorted the truth of God. And this is exactly what the idol of money does. It promises life but delivers death. There's a new film that's just come out um, called Generation Wealth, by film director Lauren Greenfield, who 
grew up in Beverly Hills and amongst the kind of elite wealthy community of LA. And she went back to kind of uh, make a documentary about, you know, some of the people that she grew up with who are just obsessed with wealth now. And um, you can watch it on Amazon Prime. And she shows how their consumerism, their a pursuit of being, becoming millionaires, is an addiction. They can't let go of it. They are, they are serving at the idol of wealth. And like addicted people in the documentary, they only realise their addiction when they hit rock bottom. So for some of them, it's when the GFC happens. Others, it's when a personal life crisis happens. And then after that, they then start to um, experience some kind of a redemption through realising their, their sickness. Not all of them, but some of them. They were all let down by the lies of the idol of wealth. Just like Judah. Judah had not committed one particular unlawful act, but in following other gods, her whole way of life has become perverted and Judah cannot see the truth. The crisis that Judah experiences is the crisis of God's judgment. So that's how they hit rock bottom. He will send a fire to consume their house, the house of Jerusalem. It says in chapter 2, verse 5. That's the way it is for so many of us when we're addicted in sin and, and addicted to an idol, worshipping an idol. The only way we snap out of it is through some kind of a shock where, where <laughs> it's almost like God intervenes in our lives and brings us to our senses. And sometimes that's in a scary way. It might have happened to you. Well, up until this point, hearing all of this probably made the Israelites in the north feel vindicated towards their, um, you know, their evil Gentile opposition no- nations and also to the south because they think that they're superior to the kingdom in the south as well. But perhaps Israel should be not too quick to judge because, as Jesus said, for in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. These judgments from God are actually serving like a noose around Israel's neck because it's going to accuse them. They thought that they'd heard the worst of it, but more severe judgment is going to be pointed at them. Let's look at that. Chapter 2, verse 6. Israel is charged with about five major crimes which are much more severe than anything that's been pointed at to the other nations, the other people. First of all, there's debt slavery. So the Israelites are selling fellow Israelites into slavery. Not only this, but they were selling the innocent. Some of the poor farmers and workers were defrauded into debt and then sold into slavery to pay for that false debt. There's also extortion. So the wealthy Israelites were so obsessed with money, they were selling the needy, it says in verse 6, into slavery. They were selling the poor into slavery. Those who had no land and were so desperate for grain to feed their family. So they'd be sold off just for a small amount of money through the cost of a sandal because the the wealthy Israelites just wanted more and more money. Their greed was so terrible. So with this goes oppression. With debt, slavery and extortion comes oppression. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed, it says in verse 7. So, you know... You've got to realise the wealthy class, classes in Israel serve also as the judges in their community. They, pl- they place the farmer and the day labourer at a distinct 
disadvantage. Fourthly, there's sexual abuse going on. So when people hold great power and lord it over others, often abuses, physical abuse and sexual abuse goes with that, and that's what's going on here. And the judgment specifically named is against fathers and sons who are um, having sex with the same girl. Um, perhaps it's incest. We don't really know exactly what's going on, but it's and also potentially linked to some kind of prost temple prostitution, but they polluted the sanctity of monogamous marriage. They, um, they, they profaned God's holy name. They violated the woman's personhood. The woman, whether she's been sold or betrothed or married, serves as a helpless object for their pleasure, for their lust. So sexual abuse. And fifthly, there's injustice and hypocrisy. So Israel is justifying their mistreatment of the poor on religious grounds. They would take the outer garments of their debtors, leaving them cold. These wealthy creditors would show up to worship at the temple wearing the debtors' coats. Uh, you know, this is, this is horrific stuff. So there's debt slavery, there's extortion, there's oppression, there's sexual abuse and injustice and hypocrisy. And on top of that, Israel is ungrateful for what God has done. It says in verses 9 to 12. God has destroyed the strong Amorite armies. The Amorites is like a summary term for all the Gentile nations um, that had been before them in Canaan. Um, he's, so this is a reminder to them. Um, he had delivered them from a life of slavery in Egypt. He had provided for their needs in the wilderness. He had brought them into the promised land and given them many miracles. He had provided for them religious and ethical welfare in his presence and, and guidance through um, prophets so in a way that no other nation had experienced, but they're ungrateful. They silenced their prophets. They commanded the prophets not to prophesy, it says in verse 12. So the sins are all the, all the worse because it revealed their ingratitude towards God. They had, should have known better. And so verses 13 to 16 reveals the punishment. God will crush them and no one will escape. The swift and the strong and the warrior will not escape. The archer, the fleet-footed soldier and the horseman will, will not save his life. Even the bravest war warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. So prosperity has really messed up Israel, hasn't it? It's led them to become corrupt and led them away from God and led them to persecute people. So they're now in trouble. Now, this attitude towards prosperity of the, the power it has to um, corrupt is the kind of focus that Jesus brings in the New Testament. Jesus comes as the fulfilment of all prophecy, and that includes the prophecy of Amos. And so we see in his life and his teaching this special heart of God for the poor. Nowhere does Jesus say that he hates material and financial prosperity, not clearly, but neither does he really give much attention to it for himself. He provides physical blessing for others, like he provides the wine at the wedding at Cana and feeds the 5,000 and, you know, he gives people um, physical blessing, but he never seeks it out for himself. If anything, he reveals a, a caution towards wealth and luxury and resists it for himself. In the temptation in the desert, Satan tries to give him everything, doesn't he? Uh, Matthew 4 verse 8, again the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth, of the world, and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
In Matthew 8, verse 20, Jesus said, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In Matthew 6, 24, he reveals the major issue. This is the major issue. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So there is a big shift in thinking in the New Testament about our understanding of prosperity. Physical prosperity no longer carries any sign that you are righteous at all. You can't make that mistake anymore. And this is consistent with the prophecy of Amos and and the Old Testament in general. But this this idea that that righteousness is a sign, uh, sorry, that prosperity is a sign of your righteousness is diminished as an idea. More likely, says Jesus, is that if you are really wealthy, you are in danger. If you're living in luxury, then you are going to be fiercely tempted to worship this idol of money. And it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus. So don't say, I didn't warn you, he says. Don't be like the rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day, who died and went to Hades, looking in torment up to Lazarus, Paul Lazarus, in heaven, standing by the side of Father Abraham. Remember what Father Abraham said to him? Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted. And here you are in agony. Wealth and luxury corrupts our soul. And it turns our eyes away from God. And so I ask you the question, how is it affecting you now? How are you being hypnotised by having a large bank balance, nice furniture and beautiful things? I want you to stop thinking about other people. Whenever we talk about wealth in church, we think about other people. We, we, we think about the person that we imagine is the wealthy person in our church or the person who's less wealthy. Just think about yourself. I know there are some people here who do not fall into this category of, of wealthy at all. We often say, in Australia, we're in the 1% of the richest people in the world, but I know that's, that's a kind of a, a meaningless statement because it's about being relative to who you're living amongst and what life you're experiencing. I know some people really struggle. They can, they can barely afford to pay their rent and they can barely afford to buy food sometimes. And I know that God sees your struggle and this is real for you. He loves you. Amos and Jesus show us that God's heart is pointed towards you. But for many of us, the challenge is that we are surrounded with nice things and beauty and our finances are decent. So then, if this is you, Amos and Jesus says, look to the Israelites. You are at risk of spiritual sickness. The idol of money tells lies, and it can lead you to turn a blind eye to the persecution of the poor. It can even lead you to participate in the mistreatment of those on the margins, as was the case with the Israelites in the 8th century BC. And Jesus shows us in his interaction with rich people that he wants you to prove physically that you're not worshipping the idol of money. But he knows he's smarter than you. So he knows that God's people are going to say, of course I don't worship the idol of money. And Jesus says to the rich man, well, if you want to inherit eternal life, sell all your possessions and give your money to the poor. Then come and follow me. Then you'll have treasure in heaven.
It's not enough to say verbally, I do not worship the idol of money. You have to prove it with your actions. When Jesus met the wealthy tax collector Zacchaeus and gave him a new life, Zacchaeus stood up and said, Here and now I give half my possessions to the poor and I have cheated. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. So Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus brother James actually builds on all of this and he says physically show it not just by how you use your money but how you treat your workers listen to James 5 this is full on now listen to you rich people weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes your gold and silver are corroded their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire you have hoarded wealth in the last days look the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. So it's not just how you use your money, but it's how you treat the workers and the poor that reveals who you really worship. What I would love to see in our church is a revitalization of what happened in Melbourne in the 1970s. I know that I'm the kind of guy to, to romanticise the 70s because I was born in 1976 and all the music that I love is in the 70s, as is the movies that I love in the 70s, and I just think it would be cool to live in the 70s. But also the church was doing something really interesting in the 70s and one of those things was the radical discipleship movement. So middle-class Christians, just like you and me, going to churches like ours, started doing radical actions of discipleship because they read passages like what was in Amos and James chapter 5 and what Jesus said, and they said, hang on, we're not living this out. So they started living it out. They started taking discipleship seriously. So I know from um, when I did some research into St. Hilary's for a book on Nick Corney's dad, Peter Corney, that um, families back then in the 70s were doing all kinds of things like taking in poor families and, and uh, I know Nick's family had a, a person who, was, um, uh, who had HIV living with them in the 80s, you know, when it was really kind of everyone was nervous about HIV and there were lots of middle class Christians doing things like this. And this wasn't, they probably wouldn't describe themselves as radical, but that's the way it's described in the history books, the radical discipleship movement. There were all these houses around that young adults were running, which had homeless people living in them. Um, even in Gold Street, just at the end of the street here, there's the house of the gentle bunyip was run in the 70s. And there were these young adults, uh, Christians, who were studying under a, a Baptist uh, teacher called Athel Gill. And he, he was teaching the, this stuff. And one of the people that was there actually at that time was Tim Costello as a young bloke in his early 20s. And, they, and Tim Costello um, was profoundly influenced by this radical discipleship movement. That sort of sent him on that journey to become the kind of leader that he is today. And he eventually um, went as a, as a pastor to St Kilda Baptist in the 1980s. And he had to struggle at that time to think about new modes of doing church and because he came from eastern suburbs, you know, he went to Cary, you know. He, went, he, he came from that sort of world and um, big, he, he came from the big sort of family crossway Baptist type, you know, you know North Blackburn, North Baptist type of world with big youth groups and big programs and people 
having caravans and holidays and going to Waikia, that sort of world he came from. And um, he, he had to think, okay, he, he wanted to do church in, in another universe, so he went to St Kilda in the 80s. And I want to read from his new autobiography a bit. This is um, a lot with a little, just a bit about his thinking that was going on in his head because his parents thought he was crazy. Like, what, what's, what's Tim doing? So anyway, listen to this. Moving to Packington Street, St Kilda, was both a break with the security of my Bible Belt upbringing in the eastern suburbs and a test in my mind. The test was simple. Did the Christian faith that seemed so attractive and motivational in the eastern suburbs prosper in the inner city? Here, churches were small and struggling and more likely to be refitted as trendy architect studios or even pizza parlours. The needs were still there. In fact, they were even greater. But the Christians had moved out. There were obviously a lot of people living alone, many deinstitutionalized, mentally ill and homeless people on the streets and street workers, pimps and small-time crims. St Kilda was a magnet then for suburban runaway kids and a catchment area for so many subcultures pushed to the margins. Artists, gay people, bohemians, punks, druggies, and Polish and Russian Jewish emigres all called it home. It was known as the Old Tart of Melbourne, no doubt reflecting the red light area that had always been part of the mix, especially during the war years with the proximity of the Port of Melbourne. And in the midst of, of this, Lubavitch Orthodox Jews, the men in fur-trimmed coats, full beards and black top hats, the women wearing wigs, were trailed by the kids on the walk to synagogue on Friday night. The Bible Belt in the eastern suburbs boasted large Sunday schools, youth, youth groups and a weekly program of activities to settle the meaning of life. But could we attract people and build a community without that middle-class religious aspiration? It seemed so easy in the safety of the suburban milieu. Well, I'll, I'll leave it there. You can read some more. But I love the discipleship, that, the thoughts that he's going through. How can we break free of the middle-class comforts and live as Jesus wants us to live and, and, and reach the world as Jesus wants us to reach the world? He challenges himself. He challenges his church. And it's not just pastors who have to think like this. All of us do. So I ask you, what tangible evidence is there? What physical proof do you have that you're not worshipping the idol of money? How is your giving at church? Do you give to any mission organisations? Do you make sacrifices at home for the sake of those who are less fortunate? Who do you share your life with and your possessions with apart from your friends and family? I invite you to live a life of worship. This is what we've been talking about the last few weeks in Romans. Look to Jesus who had nowhere to lay his head. He died on the cross to open up the way for you so that you could enter into the true land of milk and honey. He died so that you could have new life and find true satisfaction. Don't believe the, the lies of the idol of money. Go to the true saviour, Jesus Christ. Let's pray for that. Lord God, thank you uh, for the testimony of, um, of Tim Costello and the example and the example of others um, who um, have gone before us, who've 
who've come to their senses, other middle-class Christians who've come to their senses, and we pray that at Mary Creek Anglican we can bring back the radical discipleship movement, that we can actually live our faith in a way that really um, is sacrificial. And we pray especially for all those in Australia who are suffering, who are on the margins and who are being pushed away. And we pray that we can stand up and, and defend them and fight for them and uh, challenge our government to change the policies that hurt them. Thank you, Jesus, that you have um, shown us how to live and died for us so that we can live this way and enter into your kingdom and participate in your kingdom where we will be truly blessed. Amen.